Well, we've been in a section on Luke's gospel now, chapters 7 and 8, where Jesus lays out his manifesto on salvation. In your outlines, uh, in the bulletin you have an outline, and on the facing page there's a map of Luke, and you can see in, in chapter 7 and 8 where in this section where Jesus makes his offer of salvation through faith. And here we see from Jesus what salvation is and how to get it and who it's for and so on. Last time, when we were in Luke, we saw that Jesus has both authority and compassion to save. And he's looking for people of faith. That is, he's looking for people who will simply trust him. Yet, we all know people, I'm sure, who simply don't or won't trust Jesus. Maybe some of you here this morning still aren't sure whether you can trust him with your life. Why is that? Why is it that with all that Jesus has to offer, some people simply refuse to trust him with their lives? Now, we've got all kinds of reasons from materialistic assumptions to ethical concerns. There are some people who believe that the teachings of the Bible are unreasonable. And we know a lot more today about things like gradual evolution and natural selection. There might be other people who believe that the ethics of the Bible are barbaric. And we know more We know a lot more today about the nature of things like sexual orientation and gender identity. There are still others who might point to the infighting among Christians, among those who claim to follow Jesus. They can't stop fighting with each other, and they point to that as proof of the inconsistency of the movement and the impossibility of objective interpretation of such ancient texts. Perhaps you find one or more of these issues to be compelling. Maybe there's something else for you. And all of these things are worth exploring in greater depth. And as we explore them, we need to extend lots of charity and understanding toward one another. We want to be kind in exploring these objections and these considerations. Yet, this morning's passage will ask this question. Why don't people receive Jesus' salvation? And in the process of asking that question, this morning's passage will lay bare every one of us. Because there is a foundational issue underneath all the rest of those that I've described, which Jesus seeks to expose. And sometimes even those who have walked most closely with Jesus whether it's been for a season or a lengthy period of time, even if you've walked closely with Jesus, even you can have nagging doubts regarding him. So it's worth it to nail this down and get this right. What is the main thing that will prevent us from gladly receiving his offer of salvation? We will get to that in this text as we see Luke unfold his argument in three parts. You can see on on your outline. First, we will see that the one has come. Then we'll get to this key question, the reason why some receive him and some don't. And finally, we'll see the making of many excuses. So let's dive in. The one has come. 
One key reason why people don't receive Jesus' salvation is they forget who he is. We all need salvation all the time. When left to ourselves, we keep hurting ourselves and the people we care about. And we will keep looking for rescue to come from somewhere. Is Jesus the one to bring it? When we left off last time, the people were astonished at Jesus' great miracles. And they proclaimed Jesus to be a great prophet. And the word of that went all around the countryside. And also word went out that God himself had come to visit his people in the person of Jesus. And so we pick up at verse 18 in Luke 7. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? In that hour... He healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So in these verses, the the word about Jesus has gone out all over the countryside and it eventually reaches John the Baptist in verse 18. The last we heard about John was in Luke chapter 3 verse 20 where we were told that the ruler, Herod the Tetrarch, who refused to repent of his immoral sexual and marital escapades, when confronted by John on them, he locked John up in prison. And so here is John, the mighty prophet who went ahead of Jesus, now rotting in prison and beginning to question how he got there. He sends two of his followers to Jesus to confirm that he's thrown in his lot with the right guy. You see, his question for Jesus is so important and foundational that Luke repeats it twice. Verses 19 and 20. Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? This is quite a question from John the Baptist. Because you see, back in chapter 3, John was dunking people in the Jordan River and he was proclaiming a washing of transformation. He was washing people with water in order to help them see their need for inner washing and transformation. He was calling them to set aside their old lives along with their sin and to prepare for a new life in God's new kingdom with God's Messiah. The Messiah, the chosen one, was on his way, John had told them. And John said that while he could only wash them on the outside, the one coming after him was far mightier and would wash them on the inside, making them pure and blameless once and for all. But now, 
now that John is languishing in prison, he's wondering whether he might have been mistaken. He knows this Messiah is coming and he thought it was his cousin Jesus. But now he wonders, is Jesus really the guy? Because if he is, where is the promised kingdom? Where is the internal cleansing? Where is the fire and the judgment that John predicted that would remove evil men from power and tear down their thrones? You see, John's still in prison. He hasn't seen any of this happen yet. So John's two messengers sent by John, they come to Jesus in verse 20 and they ask John's question and Jesus' answer to them is fascinating. He basically says, so John wants to know if I'm really the one? Well, watch this. So you see in verse 21, in that hour, see after they come and they ask the question, in that hour, he healed many people of diseases and evil spirits and he gave sight to the blind. And then in verse 22, he tells these two messengers to go back to John and report to him what they have now in this hour seen and heard. And especially, Jesus wants them to tell John that the blind see and the lame walk and the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised and the poor receive good news. So what is going on here? How does this answer John's question? We need to remember that when Luke began his narrative of Jesus' ministry, when Jesus got things going in chapter 4, Luke painted Jesus' ministry in the colors of another prophet like John, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus preached in a synagogue and he read a passage from Isaiah that spoke of the coming Messiah and he told the people assembled there that day that it was about him. And so now, in chapter 7, when one of Jesus' main men is struggling, Jesus returns to the written word. He returns to the prophecy of Isaiah to provide confirmation of his true identity. Why do I say that? It's because this list of things that Jesus performs in the sight of John's messengers is not an accidental list. It's not a random set of things. These things on this list were carefully chosen to make a clear point. Let me read to you from Isaiah chapter 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. 
Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. So friends, when Jesus tells John's two emissaries, watch this and go and tell John what you've seen. What Jesus is saying is, yes, I am the one. You and these people right here have now seen the glory of the Lord, the glory of Yahweh, the God of Israel. I have come to strengthen weak hands and to make firm, feeble knees like John's. I've come to assure those who have anxious hearts that your God has come and I am he and I will save you with vengeance. Be strong, fear not. And friends, this encouragement is not only for John, but it's also for you and me. So on behalf of God, I tell you that Jesus is, in fact, the one we have been waiting for. Jesus is the one sent by God to make everything right. He is the chosen one, filled with God's spirit and empowered to establish a throne and a kingdom. Jesus is the answer to our prayers. Jesus is the satisfaction of our hopes. Jesus is the comfort to our affliction and the alleviation of our fears. Now, Jesus is doing something else here as well. In addition to reminding John of his identity in the the language of the prophet Isaiah, he's also concerned not just with his identity, but also with the answer, not just with the answer to John's question, but along with Isaiah, Jesus is also concerned with how people will receive him. Isaiah assures us that when the Messiah comes, in verse 1 of chapter 35, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. In verse 2, it shall rejoice with joy and singing. And down in verse 10, which I didn't read, he says that the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. So Jesus is concerned with Isaiah not just what he came to do, but with how people will respond to it. And so he concludes his response to John back in Luke with a reflection not only on his identity, but on the response he seeks to provoke. In verse 23 of chapter 7, he ended his words to John. Tell John what you've seen and heard. And he lists all the things. And then he says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. With this statement, Jesus shifts the conversation to this key topic that the rest of the passage will take up. This topic of receiving Jesus and not being offended by him. So let's talk about the reason some receive him and some don't. Luke continues and he explains this for us. Verses 24 through 30. When John's messengers had gone... Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. 
What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So as John's messengers depart, Jesus takes the opportunity to explain to the crowds what is going on here with John. Because huge crowds of these people had also flocked to John while he was baptizing people in the river. John had been quite an attraction and for good reason. And so Jesus reminds them of why they all went out to him. And what did they go to see? Not this guy in fancy clothes, but verse 26, they were attracted to him because he was a prophet. In other words, they were attracted to him because he spoke to them a message from God. That's what prophets do. And Jesus now reminds them of the message that John brought, the the, the message from God that he spoke. And Jesus does that by quoting another Old Testament prophet, the prophet Malachi. So we ought to look at the passage Jesus quotes and especially how Malachi introduces it because Jesus is really building on this to explain John. Let me read from Malachi starting at chapter 2 verse 17. The prophet says, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. So when Jesus wants to explain John's business, what he was up to, he quotes this passage from Malachi. The people of Malachi's day, this was about 400 years before Jesus, they were looking for the God of justice in chapter 2, verse 17 of Malachi. They wanted justice even while they were having trouble labeling good and evil. There are people doing evil that they're labeling good and getting away with that. And so they want the God of justice to come. They want justice. They expect God to bring it. And Malachi is like, you don't really know what you're asking for, people. And God speaks and he says, I will bring you justice Have no fear. I'll send a messenger, in verse 1, to prepare you for it. And then I myself will come and give you justice. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. I will come and tell it like it is. And then, verse 2, 
Who will be able to endure the day of his coming? Who can stand before him? Now in Luke, Jesus quotes this passage to let everybody know that John was, in fact, that messenger sent from God, the precursor, the the advance guard to the one who would come and render to every person according to what they deserve. John is that guy. This is why back in Luke chapter 7 verse 28, Jesus calls John the greatest among those born of women. John has been given the most important job in the history of the world to prepare the way for the Lord. And that means that Jesus is once again claiming to be Yahweh himself come in the flesh because John's the one who would prepare for the Lord to come and John prepared for me. Therefore, I am the Lord God who is to come. That is why Jesus says that the least in the kingdom of God is even greater than John. Because if you know Jesus, you have something even better than John had. You see, John had the most important job in the history of the world. But you have the most important person in the history of the world. You have found Yahweh himself, the creator and Lord of heaven and earth, the one who will make everything right and bring justice to the earth. And so with Jesus' speech through this passage, Luke is building, the author, he's building and building to a climax. And the climax and the focus of this passage comes in verses 29 and 30, where Luke makes a narrative statement to assess what is going on here. What's happening? Here's Luke's assessment. Many of the people who heard Jesus explain John's position, they declared God just in verse 29. They proclaim that God is now doing everything that he said he would do. And God has, in fact, brought them justice, what the people in Malachi's day asked for. God has brought them justice by declaring them to be sinners in need of rescue. You see, they declared God just because they had been baptized with the baptism of John. It was those who received John's baptism. John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance. He said, you are sinners. You need to change your lives. And that will help you to prepare the way. And those who received that, those who accepted that declaration of themselves. Yes, we are sinners. We need to repent. They now declare God to be just. You see, Malachi had asked, who can stand when the God of heaven appears? And Luke now answers. Those who repent of their sin can stand before him. These are the people who were baptized with John's baptism. They were willing to address areas in their life that needed to change. They were willing to acknowledge their need of salvation. And therefore, they found God's assessment of them to be perfectly just. And they rejoiced to see his salvation come in Christ. However, in verse 30, we are told that the religious leaders rejected the purpose of God for they had not been 
baptized by John. They had refused John's baptism because they had refused its call to give up the old life and find a new life. In rejecting this, they have held on to their lives and they cannot see the justice of God. They actually end up rejecting what God wants to do in their lives. What is the point here? What is Luke getting at? Simply this. He wants us to see that those who are rejecting Jesus here, they are not rejecting Jesus because of a lack of evidence. You see, he told us the numbers of healed people and the fulfillments of what Isaiah had predicted are piling up immensely. The evidence is there for anyone who wants to see it. But the people for whom the evidence is insufficient, they are the people who have already rejected God's purpose for their lives. In other words, they refuse to acknowledge the justice of God's declaration that they are sinners. They refuse to turn aside from their old lives to live the new lives that God wants for them. They like their old lives. They don't want to let them go. And in this way, I think people today are really no different than the people of the first century. People today like their comforts, And they like their pleasures and their friends and relations. They like their power and prestige. They like their immorality. They like their self-made circumstances. People today desire little more than to be free of all constraint. We want to define ourselves however we would like instead of how God defines us. We want to define things like, for example, gender and sexuality however we would like. We want to define ethics and morality however we would like. And this text lays every one of us bare before the sight of God. Will you declare God just when he labels you a sinner in need of mercy? Or will you reject God's purpose for you and live as though you don't need his help? You're doing just fine. The primary difference has to do with what you think about John the Baptist. That's what Jesus is talking about here is John. In other words, do you agree with John's preparatory message that what you need more than anything else is to repent of your sin? To turn away from your old life and find something new in Jesus the Messiah? Friends, this is why people don't receive Jesus' salvation. Because as Jesus warned in verse 23, they are offended by him. They are offended that he would dare to label them as sinners in need of help. They don't reject him from a lack of evidence. Ultimately, they reject him because they don't want their lives to have to change. They like what they have and they don't want to lose it. How does this apply? There are a number of ways we could go. Let me first speak to those of you who are walking with Jesus, who want to follow him. Those of you who declare God just in his declaration of you being a sinner. Let me ask you a question. 
when you speak of the work of God in your life, does it have anything to do with your sin and your need of rescue? If you talk about God's work in your life and all you have to say has to do with the activities you participated in and the friends you made and the happiness you found, you might need to re-examine the basics of your relationship with Jesus because Jesus came to save sinners. He came to declare us to be sinners so that he could do something to clean up the mess. And our testimony to the work of Christ in our lives ought to be filled with the cleaning up of our deep messes. It should seem pretty easy and clear cut, right? Who wouldn't want such blessing? Getting the mess cleaned up? Well, lots of people. So let's end briefly with the making of many excuses. Verse 31. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come, eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. So Jesus has one last word here for those who still will not believe. He wonders what more he can possibly do. He compares the people of his generation to a group of children hanging out in public together and they're calling out to one another and some of them want to, uh, to, to sing and dance happily and others are, are singing a funeral dirge and they won't join in the happiness and they won't join in the sadness and Jesus includes himself and John among the people of this generation. They were alive then. They were there calling out because in verse 34, Jesus says, I came to have a party. And yet many people won't join me. And verse 33 says, John came and he lived a more austere life. And they still found reason to write him off. Got an excuse. He's got a demon. You've got an excuse here. He's a, ta- he's a drunkard and a glutton. Jesus' point is simply this. No matter what we do, whether we bring hard words or delightful words, whether we conduct baptism services in the wilderness or we throw parties from house to house, some people will always refuse to believe. They will find some way to discount what we are saying and doing. They won't weep with us. They won't dance with us because their refusal has nothing to do with the methods that we employ to call out to them and invite them in. Their refusal has everything to do with the fact that they love their lives and don't want them to change. 
So friends, there will always be more excuses to be made for why not to trust in Jesus. You can call John a demon-possessed man. You can call Jesus a glutton and a drunkard. There will always be more excuses. There will always be more scientists looking for reasons to nail the coffin shut on any notion of an almighty God. There will always be more social causes to inspire us. There will always be another spirit of the age to make us think that we're more enlightened than our forebears. And we can think differently about this new thing, different than what God has said. There will always be more we want to do in life before we feel like we're ready to settle down and get serious about eternity. But please recognize these things for what they typically are. Simply the making of many excuses. They give us convenient ways to avoid the main issue God wants us to address, which is our sin, which keeps us from him. So I would like to end with a word to those of you who are visiting or those of you who don't yet identify as Christians and, and even to some of you children who have not yet claimed to follow Jesus, who have not yet professed faith in Jesus. For all of you, I ask, please don't be offended when Jesus calls you a sinner, when Jesus puts that label on you. Don't take offense. Blessed is the one who is not offended by Jesus. It's not wisdom to reject the prognosis of the most skilled, credentialed, and knowledgeable doctor in the cosmos. When Jesus is the best doctor and he comes and he evaluates you and he says, I know what your problem is. It's your sin. It's not wisdom for you to reject that or ignore that. If you feel like you don't have enough evidence to trust Jesus and follow him, please examine your motives. If really more evidence would help you, then let's keep reading Luke. Let's study. That's why Luke wrote, so that you could be certain of these things. But ask yourself the question, if I don't have enough evidence, could it be that actually I really just don't like what he's asking me to give up? Is that the real reason? And might it be worth it to give that thing up in order to dance with God? Because Make no mistake, that is what Jesus is saying here, that God has come to dance with you. He wants to give you life and rescue and eternal justice. He wants you to be able to see and hear and speak and jump up and dance. If you deny the reality of your sin, you are simply rejecting God's purpose for you. But if you will trust Jesus and if you will trust his assessment of your need for his rescue, you will have unbelievable access to the God of justice whose ways are just. And he will make everything right in the end. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are a God of justice. All that you say and do is righteous and wise. And we bow before you. We bow before your wisdom in sending Jesus 
And you've given us all this evidence of the things that Jesus said and did. But not only that, you told us that wisdom is justified by her children. We can see all those, the piles and piles of people who have put their faith in Jesus over the years and whose lives have changed. And there is one more evidence to vindicate your wisdom. Help us to trust you. Help us to love you. Jesus, you are our God. May we walk with you. May we dance with you for the rest of our days. Thank you so much for coming to rescue us and make everything right. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.